Hello, and welcome to GovConnect, where we sit down with local government innovation experts to bring you insightful stories and advice on technology, best practices, and the latest trends. And here's our host, Andrew Kirk. Hello, I'm Andrew Kirk, CitySource Chief Revenue Officer, and today I'm talking with Brian Elms, a founding member of Denver's Peak Academy and currently serving as an innovation practice lead at the Change and Innovation Agency. He's also a published author, thanks to his book, Peak Performance, How Denver's Peak Academy is Saving Money, Boosting Morale, and Just Maybe Changing the World, and how you can too. Today, Brian and I are speaking about the different types of innovation, talking about and defining failure, and overcoming challenges facing innovation teams and leaders. Brian, welcome to GovConnect. Thank you, Andrew. Glad to be here. Awesome. Well, if I do my job right today, we'll be able to uh, get out the same kind of energy and excitement that I've seen in a lot of your online talks. So that will know that I've done a good job. So that's our goal. Does that sound good? Oh, man, that's a high goal, brother. It's hard to do this recorded, but uh, I'm going to crush it for you. That's great to hear. So why don't you just jump in in a few minutes? Can you tell us about your professional background? Sure. I, uh, I ran the innovation program for the city and county of Denver for about five years. It's a program called Peak Academy. We started it uh, early on as a lean or a process improvement program, and it sort of morphed over time or in the innovation space, pivoted to be more of an innovation program. And the genesis of the program is to look at what services we're providing and how to provide the services better and look to our line level employees to really get them going. And I started doing this with a, uh, a small group of people in the city and county of Denver. And we moved to be uh, about 10 to 12 staff. And now they continue it. It's in its sixth year. They've saved over $30 million for the city and county of Denver. They have trained over five to 6,000 employees, predominantly line level staff and mid level managers on how to improve their service delivery. Meaning, how do you speed up your pothole filling? How do you make sure that you don't go back to the same pothole over and over again? How do we make sure we're not mailing to addresses that no longer exist? How do we make sure that the stoplights are working properly? And how do we speed up our food assistance? Making sure that people who are hungry are getting food the fastest we can do it. Great. And tell us a little bit about now where you've uh, kind of transitioned into the next phase of your career? Yeah. So I run the innovation practice lead for the Change and Innovation Agency. My job is to help other cities around the country uh, and even uh, around the world figure out ways to do the same thing that we did in Denver in their own unique space. Not every city is the same as Denver. They don't operate in the same culture. So our job is to figure out how to get their line level staff doing the same thing as we did in Denver but using their cultural uh, influences and the way that they handle their own services. So I work with about a dozen different cities coast to coast right now. Uh, I also work with some of the interior islands like Palau and Guam. Uh, And my job is to help them deliver the same type of innovation training techniques so that their employees are doing a great job every single day. 90% of my work is training employees how to problem solve and use the same verbiage or the same language to do such. So you had created this professional development academy within the city and county of Denver that I think in local government circles, you know, it holds the same level of respect, say, as 
the Disney Institute does in terms of professional development in the private sector. For your field, many people would see this as a dream career and a dream position to be in. So why did you choose to leave public service? Wow. The Disney Institute is like the carte blanche. I mean, that's like the thing to to go or aspire to. So that's amazing. I, I really appreciate that. Um, and I'm sure the people who worked at Peak Academy would be floored to hear you compare it that way. Uh, so that's awesome. Um, I don't feel like I left public service. In fact, I feel like I do more public service now than I ever did uh, working for the city and county of Denver. The difference is I'm helping other governments. So I'm helping dozens of governments as opposed to uh, helping my hometown, which is Denver. I felt like it was time to really help the other cities. When we started Peak Academy, we allowed for other governments to join us in our trainings in our programs. And what we found was around the world, people started coming to Peak Academy for help. Um, We had people come from Brussels. We had people come from Mexico. We had people come from uh, Canada. And they saw Peak Academy as this really special thing. When I was in grad school, I was fortunate enough to take a class about innovation. And it helped me solidify this thinking about really two forms. One, disruptive innovation, such as what Google did back in the late 90s, early 2000s, where the internet was this this disjointed, confusing place, and they indexed every website, and they put all of the world's information at our fingertips through their search product. And the second is a continuous incremental innovation where you make small, tiny changes that by themselves don't really have any major significant impact. But when you step back and you look at the big picture, you can see this larger change that's taken place. I think society and media, we place a lot of attention on that first form, which is really exciting and sexy. But if I'm correct and I understand what I've read about things that you've spoken about, you are really excited about kind of that second type of incremental innovation. What makes you so excited about that form of innovation? Andrew, I think it's really cool that you studied uh, innovation and and are able to break it down in those two areas. I actually think there are three, and I'll talk about both the continuous and the adjacent one. Um, There's a book called Serial Innovator by Abby Griffin that was published a few years ago, and it really helped me understand the differences between the types of innovations that we did. And she totally agrees with you. Breakthrough innovation is what the Googles are are sort of known for. Continuous innovation is how you increase a product, right? You have version A and version one, two, and three, like Apple does with every single new phone. But adjacent innovation is is another one. And I, I, I think it's something that we do really well in our innovation academies. The adjacent innovation is seeing an innovation that works, say, in public works and can also move to the parks or seeing in an in innovation that can take place in the clerk and recorder's office that also works in licensing. And you're able to use those adjacent innovations being in the same place. But the one you're, you're right, you're absolutely right, and I focus on is innovation in the continuous space but also innovation in the small, continuous space. And that's the real trick, getting people who work in government 
to innovate on the things that they have control over. And it's typically things that are small. And when you constantly believe that every day can be better than the, of the last day, so if today is better than tomorrow, how do I make every interaction that I'm playing with or every transaction that I make better than the one before? And that's really the push that we teach in our Innovation Academy courses is getting people to believe that, look, I don't need this to be perfect. I just need it to be better than it was yesterday. Can we increase our service by another person today because we made a slight change? And in government, those are the innovations that can happen without having a committee or a blue ribbon panel or something to say, oh, yes, we approve you to go forward to make this innovation. When you do small things that have dramatic impact or even small impact, over time, everything gets better. And I, I can give you an example. When we did a, a project in the animal shelter here in Denver, we had a total of around 60 different innovations. And their goal was to reduce the time it took uh, for an animal to be in our care and be able to adopt it out faster. And the faster we can get an animal out into a forever home, the more the animal uh, doesn't have any health issues. But they put 60 different innovations in place that were really small. And if you, uh, if you pick up the book, uh, Peak, Peak Performance, you can hear about a lot of those small incremental changes that have a dramatic effect over time. It's also something that we really stole from uh, the Toyota production program or the Toyota production system, where they believe in small, simple, cheap improvements that over time have a dramatic impact. And we really took that to heart, you know, changing a form, changing how people receive the form, changing the way we talk to our customers, maybe in a more salient fashion or a more humorous fashion. Those simple changes have a dramatic effect when you're dealing in you know, tens of thousands of transactions. Great. That's really helpful. There's some interesting information in that answer I'd like to unpack, especially because you enlightened me with that third type of innovation where it's adjacent. And I think in all organizations, but especially in government, uh, where each department has a very specific objective, what types of actions or characteristics can a government do to help surface ideas between different distinct departments so you can achieve some of that adjacent innovation that you mentioned? One of our focuses was bringing people into class that don't work together or aren't typically seen as people who work together. So you'll have a cohort of 25 to 30 people in a class and someone will be from public works, someone will be from the police department, someone will be from the airport, another person will be from golf, or uh, another person will be from the court system. And what you do is you have them discuss the types of problems that they're having in their own unique sphere. And at the end of the class, they've developed a relationship with the cohort members, but they've also heard about similar struggles that they have. And what we've seen time and time again is where someone from courts walks up to someone from permitting and says, oh, by the way, we did this crazy thing on our forms last year where we auto-populated half of the form for our customer. And we noticed that half of them 
started coming in correctly. We didn't have to key them in, key them into our system anymore. Uh, and when that type of thing happens, it sounds silly, but that you know three minute of keying into that information can be an actually full transaction in another department. You know the the DMV, a transaction that takes place at the DMV counter is typically three to five minutes. More often than not, it's three minutes. So how can I open up three minutes of time for every single person who works at a counter? And if one of those things is a pre-populated form, then let's figure out how to do that. Uh, and those types of innovations are, are remarkable. Uh, other things that we've seen is where uh, a public works employee will talk to a parks employee about pre-maintenance. Uh, for their machinery. And preventative maintenance is incredibly important for a lot of machinery, just so that it doesn't have any downtime. And it was awesome. I mean, I've seen actual parks employees and public works employees talk about similar machines and making sure that they get that preventative maintenance check. And when they did, they were able to, say, mow a park for an additional hour. Uh, they were able to lower a manhole uh, every single day, they got a single manhole additional to what they were doing the day before. Those types of aha adjacent things are, is what I'm talking about. A lot of people, when they, when they hear me talk, they're like, yeah, break down the silos. Everyone in government's in a silo. Uh, and I really don't talk about that. I don't use that language. And the reason I don't use that language is because that is something that isn't in everyone's power and control. Your job in government is typically in a certain sphere. And unless you're a higher level manager, you don't have the ability to break down the silo uh, of your department. And most of the people I work with are line level staff and mid level managers. And you can get people to do really cool stuff if you're talking about the impact it makes in their daily life, the impact it makes in their customers' life. Those have things that you talk about for years versus, oh, yeah, we broke down a silo. That's not something anyone's going to talk about. But if you talk about releasing the right inmate at the right time, because we made changes to how we process inmates, that's a big deal. If you talk about getting someone a job who's been homeless for five years, that's a big deal. So let's, let's use those actions versus the, the big words. So already in our conversation today, you've talked about that action and some of the successes that have come from that action. But inherent to innovation is failure. And failure has traditionally been a bad word in government. And clearly, there are times when that thinking is justified. If we're talking about a city erecting a new four-way streetlight, we really, really don't want failure. So how can leaders start to define acceptable and unacceptable types of failure within their organization. I love your example, Andrew. That's that's awesome. Yeah, no, the streetlight has to work, bro. Uh, we got <laughs> we got to get that up and running. It can't fail. Nobody's bringing you in for a streetlight innovation project anytime soon, is what you're saying. <laughs> Not after I just said that. <laughs> uh, I love it. I mean, I think most people who fail in government, I mean, we end up on the front page of the paper. So uh, when you fail, you, you just have this perverse incentive to not fail. So it, it's this like 
unspoken truth that if you mess up, man, you're going to end up on the front page of the paper. And look, some huge banks in the last 10 years have tried to have technological innovations take place, and they completely failed putting it forward. That failure cost them tens of millions of dollars, and they didn't even report it in their SEC filing. When we make a $10 million failure in government, you know, someone has to be held accountable, someone's going to lose their job, um, and then someone ends up on the front page of the paper. Well, I, I hope what you heard me talk about uh, were small, simple, cheap improvements. That's really how we teach people to understand failure. When you're doing a small improvement that has a small effect, most people don't get upset that it didn't work. Um, the next day, you just try something new. It's when we have these colossal failures you know, that people tend to write about, that people tend to talk about more frequently than anything else. The first thing I teach every single one of my clients in every city I've ever worked in, if your employees do not feel safe, they will never innovate, period. There's nothing you can do. You must allow them to feel safe that their environment is not going to whack them when they come up with a great idea. Once you've created that safe environment where people are allowed to have uh, failures and are allowed to bring ideas up to the boss, then you can move forward. You know, one, one of my favorite people to work with in the city of Miami is Fernando Casamayor. Uh, and he talks about when he joined government, he worked in the court system and he came up with this great idea to tell his bosses. And it was after his, you know, first or second month of working there. And he brought up this idea to uh, stop printing out over and over how many people were going to show up for court and instead just take whoever came and then at the end of the day, look back and, and audit it. And the, he brought this up to his, his boss. And the first thing they said was, shut up, rookie. You don't know anything. In most places, that's the first reaction to innovation. The first reaction to innovation is always no. I mean, I teach people to say yes. It is the weirdest thing that uh, I've never, I never—I I don't really understand. I mean, you have two kids, Andrew. But some of some of our colleagues' kids, their first words are no longer "mama" and "dada." Their their first words are "no." My daughter's first word was "duck." Well, we think it was duck. We're a little nervous. It was something else. But, you know, in most cases, kids, kids say no first. They don't even say, I love you anymore. It's no. And it's so pervasive uh, throughout our work that I literally teach people to say yes. You have to learn how to say yes. The reason you say no when someone comes up with an innovation is because the moment you say yes to an innovation, you've just agreed to more work. Innovation is always more work. There's never a time where innovation isn't more work. And let's just say you have a fear of failure. You have a fear of more work. You have a whack-a-mole culture. The last thing that's going to happen is innovation. So your challenge is if you're a manager, a mid-level manager or an executive, is to learn how to say yes, to spark a culture of small, increment, cheap improvement. 
that make our customers' lives better. And the, the more that you can get that going, those big innovations, those breakthrough innovations that you talk about, like with the Googles of the world, those will happen. But if you have a culture where you don't allow for innovation to take place, where you say no before you even hear the idea, you're never going to see an innovation take place. So Brian, I think what you talk about is really exciting, but I can guarantee you there is at least one person listening to you and thinking, Brian, listen, that sounds great, but I work in an environment where whack-a-mole is the culture, and I personally don't have the authority to enact these types of changes. So everything you're talking about sounds great, but it really just doesn't apply to me. So what would you say to that government employee listening you know, with limited influence, without authority, and help them personally realize that they can actually have meaningful impact in taking steps towards innovation? Well, clearly, they're one of my clients. Because every client I have <laughs> says this, uh, and every government employee I have says this before uh, taking the class. Uh, I mean, th- that's sort of the lighthearted answer. I think the real answer is, number one, I'm going to give them a hug and say, look, I totally get it. I've been in your position. Tell me about the thing that you think you have control over. Where do you have influence in your job? And then we'll talk about you know, you answer the phone every day. How you answer the phone can be innovated. You work on a form every day. How you work on that form can be innovated. You get up every morning. How you get out the door can be innovated. And if you take a step back and instead of thinking, like we were talking about in the, in the last question, instead of thinking of a breakthrough, think of something that will make your job easier your life easier. And I don't mean by pushing other work to another department. I'll give you a great example. When we started working uh, with a group that was handling medical marijuana and retail marijuana, they were doing all the licensing. Well, when medical marijuana and retail marijuana, uh, it was a new sort of licensing to take place. So people had tons of questions. Well, those questions were coming into the licensing department. Every time that someone called, and asked a question, that call got transferred directly to the licensing department and direct, directly to a licensing tech. Well, when that occurs, we're taking that licensing technician off the counter. That means they cannot p- perform a transaction. So we worked with that team to create something as simple as a frequently asked questions, and we placed that on the website. I know that sounds crazy, but we were receiving over 80 phone calls a week questions about marijuana licensing. When we put that frequently asked questions, that template up onto our website, those 80 calls dropped down below three. So we went from handling 80 phone calls a week to handling three phone calls a week. And all we did as simple as put a frequently asked questions piece on a website. I hear these stories all the time of I'm not in charge of anything. I don't have influence or control of anything. And I I remember this because my colleague from Chattanooga tells this remarkable story of this woman who went through one of our classes where she went through the class thinking she had no control or power over anything. And every single day, part of her job 
was to take some form that was submitted online, rekey that information into a system that included a phone number. The phone number online put dashes into everyone's phone number. The form that she was filling out internally didn't have dashes. So every single day, she would spend an hour removing dashes from this form. After taking our class, she realized she could change the form on the website that wouldn't allow the dash to ever be implemented or inputted into the system. And now, every single day, she has an hour a day that she doesn't have to do that anymore. To me, that's innovation. That changes her daily activity. She now has an additional hour to help, say, three, maybe five, maybe 20 more people because she's no longer typing in a single dash in a phone number. I know that sounds crazy. And, and a lot of your listeners are thinking that that's a silly example, but it's real. That single dash changed the way that she worked every single day. So I think so far we've had a lot of great conversations about the frontline employees, the middle manager staff, but let's take a step up and talk about in your eyes, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges you see facing chief innovation officers or other managers or executives who are in charge of influence? And from your perspective, what might be one way they could start to tackle that challenge? Chief innovation officers have a unique role to place in most governments. And I think the scariest part about being a chief innovation officer is you don't want to be the person that stops innovation. When a person gets the title of director of innovation or chief innovation officer, a lot of employees throughout the organization will start to think that that's the only place you can innovate, that you can't innovate anywhere else. So that's a huge challenge for innovation officers around the country is your job is to create that democratized innovation where you're allowing everyone to be innovative, everyone to be creative. Because if you're working in a city that has, say, 1,200 employees, one person in charge of innovation is going to slow the innovation machine. But if you give everyone the authority to innovate and the power to innovate, now you have 1,200 people working to create that disruption and create that innovation. That's my biggest piece of advice to any innovation officer. Allow the democratization of innovation to take place. Think about your job as a facilitator of innovation and not the creator of innovation. Great. Shifting gears, let's get started with our rapid three questions. So CitySource is all about the power that local governments can have in delivering more services via the smartphone. What type of phone do you use and what's your favorite mobile app? Oh my gosh. I use an iPhone X. I think my daughter calls it a 10. So I should probably learn how to really talk about it. (laughs) But I'm a dork. So the app that I use the most is uh, an app called Open Snow. Uh, which tells me what ski resort has the most snow and uh, how much snow they got the night before so that I could decide if I want to go skiing that day or not. (laughs) 
the little lifestyle app uh, that I use the most is typically like a gin app, like uh, playing gin on the uh, on the airplane or listening to audiobooks uh, on Audible or audiobooks.com. That's how dorky I am. Well, that's great. I can relate. We're in Southern California. We do the opposite. It's with the surf report and what has the best waves today. So I can definitely understand. Number two, what's one book you most recommend or give away to others? Well, the, the number one book that I give away to others is this book that was written by me. <laughs> Never heard of it. Try again. Yeah, yeah. My, my <laughs> humble brag. Um, so I actually give that book away a lot. What I do tell people, like I have a couple that are, are in my uh, constant uh, giveaway pile. But the, the one that's had the most, I would say, the dramatic effect on what I do and a dramatic effect on creating Peak Academy uh, and Peak Performance, and even the book and writing the book, is a book by Charles Duhigg called The Power of Habit. And Charles talks about making good habits. And for me, what we try to do in Peak Academy and what I try to do in Innovation Academy is teach employees how to make good habits of their job. And the more good habits that you have, the best, you know, the better your job is. Uh, it talks about creating flow at your work because your habits are really positive. Three, what's one tool, software, or even non-tech hack that you're using to improve your life? Well, the non-tech hack that I use and the one that I teach everyone uh, is how to use Post-it notes. I, I use Post-it notes for everything. I use Post-it notes to write down uh, my ideas for the day. I use Post-it notes to write down checklists. I use Post-it notes for, for almost anything. And if you, if you take a look at my book, I teach people how to use Post-it notes a lot. Well, thank you, Brian. That ends our episode for today. Please let our listeners know where they can find out more information and connect with you online. Yes, you can connect with me at multiple different places, but one is changeagents.info. And that's a place where our firm is located. Uh, another place that you can grab our information is on Governing's website for the Peak Academy uh, and Peak Performance book. Um, you can also, you know, Google me, um, and you'll be able to find both my LinkedIn work and any blogs that we write, as well as my book uh, on Amazon. So hopefully, you'll pick up a book and uh, give me a call. Thank you so much, Andrew. This sounds. Uh, I at least thought it sounded great. uh, And I can't wait to hear it. Awesome. Well, we'll let our listeners be the judge of that. But if you want to find out more information about Brian, we'll connect those links in our show notes. And if you want to learn more about how local governments are delivering more services to their residents through our mobile app, please visit us at citysource.com. And as always, if you have any feedback, I'd love to hear it. Shoot me an email. It's andrew at citysource.com or on Twitter at Andrew K. Kirk. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Spotify. Please subscribe to GovConnect through your favorite podcast service and leave us a review if you found this episode with Brian and I helpful. It helps us to spread the word that GovConnect is the podcast for local government innovation. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to GovConnect. Please make sure you subscribe. And don't forget, we need you to rate and review so that we can continue to bring you the best in local government innovation.